Welcome to the Trailer Cast with Elise Snipes. Each week, I will be sharing with you from inside my vintage trailer where I work as a therapist and share some of my musings on the human experience. I am endlessly fascinated and inspired by people. I love being a therapist and I'm deeply grateful for the intimate and beautiful work I get to do. I believe we are wildly capable of healing and making this world a better place, and this is my attempt at doing that. Sharing beauty to invoke beauty. May you find yourself inside these stories and ponderings and be better for it. Cheers. Welcome to TrailerCast today. Today's episode is going to be a bit unique, something I have never done before and something that I'm really thankful I have the opportunity to do. Today's episode is about contrast, a juxtaposition. Today's episode is about life and death. And sometimes we don't fully realize we are alive until someone dies. Our culture is strange about death. It's like one of those taboo topics that isn't pretty or clean or polite or dinner table appropriate. But my question is, if not there, then where? Like, how do we ever learn about death and dying and what it's like and what happens and what it feels like and what those people have to say if we can't talk about it in like the safety or confines of our own tables? Where are the stories, the people? What wisdom do they have that we are missing out on because we won't let them at our table? Today's episode is an invitation into a very private and sacred conversation. A real conversation with someone facing death. We're going to call her Evelyn. October 27th, 2018 was our first DM. (laughs) We met via Instagram, um, just the way that you do. Corresponding and joking. And a couple messages in, I learned that Evelyn is facing, um, she's dying. And there is a morbid connection that I think occurs when you have also watched somebody face death or you have walked people through that time of their life where, honestly, there's a craving of somebody else who gets it, who can talk about it freely, who can even joke about it. There's a a gallows humor, a club that you never asked to be a part of, but now that you are, you're kind of thankful when other people are there so you don't feel so weird when you want to make inappropriate jokes about death with 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 people who actually get it. And so I think that there was this refreshing connection of honestly as a therapist you can really tell me anything. <laughs> you can say the weirdest most inappropriate thing and save company. And then beyond the fact of me being a therapist is me being a person who has lost people that are very close to me. As I have witnessed all different weird forms and stages of this grand transition from here to there, of slipping beyond the veil. And so I think that Evelyn and I were, it was like kismet, right? Like this this perfect <laughs> kindred joining of conversation and honest questions and perfectly inappropriate humor. And we began to correspond over the next year and a half And we wrote all sorts of things, but there's one topic in particular that stuck out to me, and it is the idea of voice, the sound of your voice, 
the unique way that we can identify through sound. Like, you know, when you hear someone's specific voice or their laugh or it's like it's such a quality that makes that person who they are. And then, of course, the contrast of those who don't have voice. After my brother died, I remember I would uh, call his voicemail just to see if I could hear his voice one more time and one more time and one more time until it was disconnected. And it was startling on that day when I realized that that was gone. Like his voice was not here. It was not something that I can access. And I, I reflected bits and pieces of this to Evelyn throughout our conversations. And um, then, of course, I just very directly asked her, would you be interested in recording a podcast episode together about dying? Tactful, huh? <laughs> but, you know, when you're dying and everything is so murky, sometimes an honest, straightforward question can be so freaking refreshing. <laughs> like with so much tiptoeing and, and whispering around these topics, it's, I'm like, no, like we invite that in. We talk about it because everything is welcome at this table. And thankfully, Evelyn has a kindred spirit and is generous enough to share herself here. So what follows are a series of questions, both for her and for us. My hope is that you listen, that you hear, that you pull up a chair, and that you stop whatever else you're doing. And really listen. What is your current health status? I have terminal lung cancer and have been given two months to live. More specifically, I have stage four lung cancer with tumors that have metastasized to my brain. What was it like when you first got your diagnosis? It's hard to describe because it was the most surreal day of my life. I'd had multiple upper respiratory infections and could not kick a cough that seemed to hold on for months and months and just kept getting worse. After many trips to the doctors and rounds of antibiotics, I finally had an ER doctor take a chest x-ray when my husband insisted we go to the ER after dropping our boys off at school one morning. I remember the most ridiculous things about that day in such detail, but could not tell you the important things the doctor was trying to tell me as they went over the results of my chest x-ray. I remember that the first words out of my mouth were, but I've never smoked. It's kind of funny now that those were my first words because I know that all sorts of people get this kind of cancer, many of whom have never smoked either. But in my head, all I could see were those old, terrifying Smoking Kills commercials with people telling you not to smoke in between gasps of air. In between flashes of those commercials, I knew my doctor was saying something important, but all I could hear was the clinking of the desk lamp pull cord against the lampstand as my husband's nervous foot tapping shook the doctor's desk. It all felt like a movie I was watching about myself, but not something that I was actually living. The only reason I remember leaving the doctor's office that day was because my daughter, who was about 10 months old at the time, said bye-bye for the first time as the doctors waved to her. It was not till that night after we had put our kids to bed that my husband and I finally looked each other in the eyes. All day we'd avoided talking because we still had three small humans who had no clue what was going on and still needed to be fed and bathed and put to bed. But once the house was finally quiet, we finally looked each other in the eyes and there were no words to speak. 
We both fell into our bed and held each other as we cried ourselves to sleep, knowing full well that the life we thought we were going to have together would now be drastically different. They say that life can change in an instant, and as cliche as that sounds, it is exactly what happened to us. We started that day assuming that we had a long future ahead of us, but ended it with a diagnosis that put a two-year limit on the future we would have together. Can you tell us about you and who this diagnosis is impacting? I tend to describe myself as who I was before cancer and who I am after the diagnosis because they feel like totally different people. But in reality, I am still mostly me and have had the same roles then that I do now. I am a deep feeler, creative thinker, sass-filled optimist who speaks fluent sarcasm, can be blunt to a fault and and have cancer to think for a growing sense of morbid humor. I am a wife to my incredible husband who I've been married to for 12 years and a mom with a three sweet and wild kids. My boys are very close in age at five and six with birthdays just a day apart and then our sweet surprise of a girl is two. Before kids and cancer, my husband and I loved to travel and got to live in multiple countries due to his job while I was a graphic designer. After our sons came pretty much back to back, we made some big changes and I chose to stay at home with the kids and my husband took a job with less travel. Both seasons of our life have brought us so much joy, but I think my husband would agree that parenting has been our wildest adventure to date. I'm also a daughter and a sister-in-law to some amazing family. What has changed for you since living with this diagnosis? What hasn't changed might be a quicker answer, but I'll try to answer yours. I have always loved being a wife and mom, but those roles have probably changed the most since my diagnosis. That has also been the most painful part. Pretty quickly after diagnosis, I started chemo, then had surgery, then more chemo with some experimental drugs thrown in which all drastically affected my ability not only to care for my kids and husband, but even myself. In about a year and a half, I have gone from being the primary caregiver in my family to needing care almost 24-7. Even now, I am not the only one typing these answers back to you. I'm having to whisper and stutter and fumble my way through dictating it to a friend because I am too weak to type more than a few sentences at a time, and some of the tumors that have metastasized to my brain have affected my speech. Everything about my physical body has changed, and every close relationship I have has changed. Nothing goes untouched when you get a terminal cancer diagnosis. Even though there is so much that is taken from you, and many of the changes are not ones I want, there have been some surprisingly good changes as well. Like I said, every close relationship changes, and a lot of times that is really hard, but there's a depth you reach more quickly when you are no longer afforded the time we assume we all will always have. My husband and I joke that in this last year, we have lived a hundred years. We have become closer than I ever thought possible and have had the hardest and best conversations of our lives. We've been able to give each other the gift of being fully known and fully loved. You don't hold back anymore when you're dying. And in the best possible 
in the best way possible, the people who you choose to be close to learn to not hold back anything with you either. Your circle of close people gets much smaller when something like this happens, but those relationships and those people are more precious than a hundred more years. So yes, everything changes, but not all of those changes are bad. What do you want people to know about dying? I could split the answer to this question into two categories. One would be the practical things I wish people knew about dying or how to treat the dying and their families. And the other would be what I'd want you to know about the emotional side. For the practical, I can only speak for myself, but I will say that these thoughts have been pretty pretty commonly felt among fellow terminal patients I have met along this journey. We still want to be talked to, joked with, spent time with, and hugged just like before we were diagnosed. If you are unsure if your family or friend still wants any of those things, please ask. We understand that this is hard for everybody else, but it is really hard for us to feel like everyone is tiptoeing around us. Obviously, don't come to my house and hug me if you are sick, but if you are healthy and have, I haven't just finished chemo, please hug me, hold my hand, or just touch me in some caring way. Sometimes I feel like people think if they touch me, they will catch death, but I promise that is not how this works. I never realized how much I missed physical contact with the people I love until they stopped for fear of hurting me or because they felt awkward doing so. When so much is changing in your life and in your body, you crave the most basic comforts and being touched is one of those. So as long as you are given the green light, hug and touch your dying family and friends. It reminds us that we are still here and that we are still human and that you care for us. For the emotional side of what I'd want people to know about dying, I guess I could sum it up in that a lot of it is both and. There is both heartbreaking loss around every corner and still surprising moments of joy that you'd never expect. It would take too long to describe the ins and outs of it, and people have already wrote a lot of great books on what it's like to die, but I will say that it's true that the depth to which you experience pain is the depth in which you can experience joy. Pain and joy have walked hand in hand in our life over the past year, and I can say with confidence that we have been made better for it. How do you want people to remember you? I want people to remember me as a wife who loved her husband with passion, a mama who loved her children with fierceness, and a friend who loved her people boldly. I guess I want to be known for loving the people in my life well. That was not the legacy handed down to me, but it is the legacy I have worked hard to leave my children. I have had so many people pour out their kindness, compassion, care, and love into me, and I hope I will leave them with an ounce of what they have given me. Has your belief system changed at all in this journey? I don't know if it has changed so much as it just made me more confident in what I already believe. I did not grow up in a religious house or one that had any real belief system, but that changed when I went away to college and met my husband and closest friends who did have a religious background. The answer to this question could be an entire podcast in itself, but the best way I could sum up what I believe is that it has very little to do with religion and everything to do with relationship. I believe in a God who created and cares for each individual walking this planet 
and that because we are his creation, we are inherently good and worthy. In this last year, as my body has failed me, when I've been tempted to say I must be bad or lack worth because of that perceived failure, I have felt God always speak against that, either through the people who love me or sometimes a totally supernatural way that I cannot even explain. I am not a religious scholar, but I will die confident in a God who knows each of us, loves us, cares for us, and sees good and worth in us because we are his creation. Why do you think it is hard for people to talk about death? This is another answer that could be a whole episode itself. Like so many things in life, if it is not talked about or normalized, it can become something we fear solely because it is the unknown. There is fear in the unknown, and we also don't want to think about us or someone we love dying. Death tends to make people very uncomfortable when they are staring it in the face, and I think so much of that just comes from it not being talked about. I think our culture in the U.S. also plays a big part in why it's so hard. Other cultures and countries around the world actually tend to have a much healthier relationship with death, as funny as that may sound. It's also incredibly ironic that dying is one of the things we will all face, yet it's often talked about the least or not talked about at all until you or someone close to you is experiencing it. Even my husband and I initially thought we would shield our kids by not talking about death in front of them. We eventually agreed that that was not the right choice for us and would just perpetuate the fear for them and possibly even make it more difficult for them to talk about when they are grown. Our kids are still young and there's a lot of consideration that goes into what is appropriate for their ages, but we do not shield them from the fact that I am dying. I know that can stir up a lot of feelings for people because we have experienced people expressing their concerns about our six-year-old telling them that in fact, they are going to die one day, but we have seen it profoundly positively impact our kids. Just by giving them the opportunity to engage in the process and ask any questions they want has helped restore some peace in our oldest child. Our oldest son is the thinker and internal processor, and after I was diagnosed, we saw his confidence tank and anxiety skyrocket. Simply by starting to to have very honest yet age-appropriate conversations with him, we were able to see him come back into his confident self. And so much of that was a result of just letting him ask the questions that were already there inside him. We had unknowingly made it difficult for him to ask questions because we were trying to protect him from something he was already experiencing. Our kids have been great teachers and better ways to deal with and talk about death. They are not bogged down by what is socially acceptable. So all they needed was for us to invite them into the very thing we had been taught was not appropriate for them. And in turn, they have taught us how to better engage with conversations about death and dying without fear. We know the lack of fear will not protect our children from being sad when I am gone but I believe it'll give them the freedom to talk about it in a way that will help them process their sadness in a better way. For now, our kids don't fear offending someone and 
they aren't even aware that it is not socially appropriate to talk about death because that is not how we want them to think about it. And I believe we would be a healthier society if we approach the conversation about death with the same openness that they do. And what would you tell those people? Even if talking about death is uncomfortable for you or you avoid it because it brings you feelings you'd rather not feel, my advice is to try it anyway. Embrace that it is uncomfortable or makes you feel things you don't like. Say that out loud with whoever you're talking about it with, and I bet you'll be met with a me too. But there is magic in entering into these kinds of conversations. Death gets avoided in conversation because of how people think they will feel if they talk about it. But as someone who has had numerous conversations about it over this last year, I can tell you that every single time the other person has said that they felt better after talking about it openly, or at least at the very least didn't feel as uncomfortable about it anymore. It is the same as with my kids. We all have similar questions and feelings within us, and we just need to be either invited into the conversation or given the freedom to ask the hard questions. I'd encourage anyone to apply this type of courage to any topic in life with the most trusted people in your life. It has only created deeper relationships for me. What is your favorite thing about your husband? I have to pick just one. I could go on and on about my husband and annoy so many people, but we'll try to only do that a little. In a weird and backwards way, we have often felt like we had to be careful about how much we, or mostly me since I was a talker, talked about how happily married we are. Don't get me wrong, it has not always been easy and there have been lots of seasons of growing and pains, but I can honestly say I have always loved being married to my husband. We have worked at being intentional with one another, and my husband is incredibly good at that. If I had to narrow it down to my favorite thing about him, it is the way he loves me and our kids. He is the strong, silent type, a little rough around the edges, a man's man of sorts, but a total mush at his core, especially when it comes to our family. He selflessly loves and serves his family every day. The best part about his soft side is that he is not ashamed of it. He may be the man's man type, and he may be quiet by nature, but he does not hide his affection from me or our kids. He will have dress-up tea parties with our daughter on the front lawn and cuddle our boys as if they are still tiny babies. He intentionally knows each of us and tries to love us each in the way that speaks the most to us. He is such a good man, and it is such a gift to be his wife. What do you want your kids to know about you? I want them to know that being their mom has been one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life. It has been the deepest heartbreak to know that I will miss graduations, weddings, babies, and the opportunity to know them as adults. I know that they will mourn those things as they come, and I hope they know I mourned them too. I want them to know how deeply loved and cherished they are by me. I want them to know I always delighted in them for the gift that they each are. I want them to know that as long as they treat themselves and others with love and kindness, I will always be proud of them. And that even when they feel at that, that does not change my love for them. 
I know many adults who have lost parents at a young age have so many questions about how their parent might feel about them now or what they would think about them. And I want my kids to know about me is that no matter the mistakes or missteps they make, I love them. What is your grand piece of life advice for us? It is not grand or even new advice, but it's always what I say when I'm asked and it's advice I wish I would have taken sooner. It's simple at its core, but it's not something we always do well. My grand advice is to tell people what you want them to hear and ask for the same in return and don't hold back. The good, the hard, all of it, and honesty and love. We generally know how to tell people what they want to hear, but I don't think we tell them what we want them to hear as often as we should. By this, I mean when someone who really cares about you asks how you are, how often do you answer in ways that you know won't make them uncomfortable? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not me telling you to unleash every thought you've ever had about someone. This is about saying the things we hold back in fear of how it might affect the relationship. There's a difference in keeping private thoughts private and keeping secrets that we might think are preserving a relationship, but in reality has kept it from being what it was fully intended to be. In our oversharing social media, Instagram perfect world, the difference between privacy and secrecy has somehow become confused or blurred. People post all sorts of things online, but often keep it a secret when they are lonely or when they are in pain. For so long, I feared that to be fully known by another human would mean I would not be loved, and it took the fear of dying without feeling fully known to finally take that risk. It felt like honesty risked the relationship, but I found it was the opposite. I can say that in speaking that fear out loud to my closest and most trusted people, 100% of them shared that same fear. I'm not sure how or when that lie found its way into our hearts and minds, but I think if we could all find the courage to speak it out loud, we might be surprised by what we find. After I was diagnosed, there was a sense of urgency for me to know my people well and for them to know me before I die. And one of my only regrets is that we didn't live this way sooner. The depth and security created by letting the people who you love hear what has always been kept in the dark and then being able to hear, yeah, me too, or that was terrible, but that does not make you who you are, is life-changing. The irony here might be that I know many people are going to therapy because they are actually looking for that same thing. But like I have heard Elise and others in helping professions say, what if we could do that for each other? I think it would actually make a bigger impact if the people who already knew us, the people in our daily lives, were the ones willing to hear our deepest thoughts, fears, longings, hurts, and joys. Just being heard and known by my people has profoundly impacted my life and theirs too. None of this is to say it could ever take the place of therapy, but if we were in the habit of having open and honest conversations with one another, I'd bet that when we did find we needed some extra help from a therapist, the work would go much quicker because sharing the honest and hard things would not be such a foreign concept. 
So my advice is be willing to take the risk and let the trusted people in your life know you. Then watch the ripple of how that affects not just your relationship with them, but also theirs with the people around them. I have been lucky enough to have a husband and friends willing to enter into that type of honesty with me. And I know not everyone might have that same privilege, but my encouragement then would be to go out and find it. It's true that we attract like-minded people. So if you lead with the willingness to be open and honest, you might be surprised by what you find. Even in my case, not everyone was willing to step into that type of openness that I was asking for, and that was okay. It just meant they weren't going to be in my closest circle. But for those who have, we can say we will never be the same, and what was created between us is sacred. Because we all chose to risk it, now I will not be the only one who will be able to say when I die that I have been fully known and loved by someone in my life, and I think that's all every human really wants. If what I leave behind is a family and friends who feel like they have been fully witnessed in their darkness, celebrated in their joys, and have been found good in every bit of who they are, then I have lived the life I hoped and I was the person I aspired to be. Elise, thank you for giving me the opportunity to put some of these thoughts out into the world. It was an unexpected joy to connect with you, and I can confidently say that my life is not the only one made better by your work. To everyone listening, I hope you maybe learned a little bit about how to live a fuller life through our conversation about death. I encourage every one of you to invest in the people around you in the way you might have never before. None of us are promised tomorrow, so don't let fear dictate your relationships or keep you from risking being fully known. There is more freedom on the other side of fear than you could ever imagine. Evelyn, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I want you to know, too, right now, as you listen, that your life is giving me life. And originally when I thought that we would be recording a podcast together about death, I didn't fully realize that this conversation was actually going to be about living and about life and love and connection and motherhood and humor um, and all the things that we don't realize we're talking about when we say we're going to be talking about death. And so thank you. Thank you for sharing yourself and for answering these super direct and, and intense questions. I hope that this becomes a time capsule, something that you can return to, that your family can return to, that they can hear the depths and the height and the width and the fullness of who you are and of your love for them. Thank you, (laughs) Trixie. (laughs) And for the people listening, um, what was today's conversation like for you? Whatever came up, please don't push it back down. Whatever unfinished business you have, take care of it. Whatever has been left unsaid, say it. Whatever you need to do, please do it. And remember, these conversations are ones that we want to be able to have in, in freedom. And so may we take courage, may we take heart, And may we use our voice in a way that allows us to connect truly to people in the fullness of life. 
Cheers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you are interested in beginning your own work in therapy or coaching, you can go to www.elisesnipes.com. Follow me on Instagram at Elise Snipes Collective, where I will be sharing more with you throughout the week. You can get in touch with me to suggest a topic for the show or to ask a question from your own life you would like to have answered. Or just say hi by emailing me at elise at elisesnipes.com. Remember to subscribe on iTunes and tell your friends.